there. My name is Michael Brady, and I am part of Partners for Karmic Freedom with Linda Brady, the world-famous international karmic astrologer. And I'm her henchman. Welcome to The Cancer Project. This is January 2nd of 2023. Happy New Year, everyone. And it is uh, day 153, 153rd day of the Cancer Project, the Cancer Project. I'm going to call it the New Year uh, title in, um, in the podcast when you see it. Uh, we are karmic astrologers. We can be reached at um, karmicfreedom.com. That's our website. And has all the useful, helpful information about us and about what we do and how to connect to us and how to get gift certificates and buy things and a whole bunch of interesting stuff. I hope you'll peruse our website whenever you get a chance and turn other people on to us through it. Uh, and we can be reached at um, karmicfreedom at gmail.com. That's our email. And I can be reached at 802-323-6880. It's a smartphone. You can text me. You can call me. Uh, you can even email me through it. Um, so at any rate, welcome to this show. Uh, I sound upbeat, but I'm not really that upbeat this this year, uh, this new year. I'll I'll talk about that a bit down the road. But first, I want to catch everybody up with the Cancer Project, with what is happening with Linda and her her sojourn of um, contracting cervical cancer and curing it and then carrying on with our life. We're not quite there yet. Um, we, on July 3rd, if you're just tuning in, Linda Brady was diagnosed with cervical cancer stage three. Um, and she has received radiation and chemo treatment of five or six weeks duration, um, starting in August, uh, uh, and at, that's been completed for a bit now, uh, four weeks, I think, um, something like that, um, six weeks maybe. Uh, she had uh, kidney issues along the way right from the beginning, so they, they put a nephrostomy tube in her right kidney, so she had a partial collection bag uh, on her right side uh, and was bionic, um, until about a month and a half ago um, when that was removed. So since uh, since November something, she's been f free of that uh, and feels like a whole person again on that level. Um, the cancer is supposedly gone. Uh, she's had all the treatments. Uh, there's no evidence of uh, treatments on the last um, scan that they did. Um, they're going to do another follow-up scan uh, in the next three to four weeks uh, after we um, have a test done uh, and and a review to make sure of everything's okay. So she's not having the pain from the from the cancer or from the tumor. She's not having the pain from her kidney very much. Uh, once in a while, her kidney aches a little bit in the back, but not a lot. Um, so she, that sounds like she should be great, but she's not. Because when you take chemo and radiation treatment for cancer, there's pain involved uh, from the disease and from the cure, from the radiation, because that's killing you too. 
Uh, and the, it's normal to prescribe painkillers and anti-nausea medication up the wazoo for people with cancer um, and in treatment for cancer. And drugs like uh, Ativan, which is an anti-anxiety medication, doesn't sound like a big deal, but it is. And Oxy, which is a opiate, which is a big deal uh, and sounds like it is. Oxycodone in this case. Um, have to be given during the course of the treatment to help modulate the various kinds of pain that you're going through. Um, and there is in, now they don't, they did not tell us this. I'm telling you all this. There is no way to avoid becoming dependent on those medications uh, in a physical, chemical way if you use them longer than short-term. And short-term, if you go in and read about these medications, is a couple of weeks. Well, she had to use these for a couple of, hell, she had to use these for six months, six months plus now. She's still, she's down to, um, and she only took the lowest dose of Oxy, by the way. Um, which is 2.5 milligrams. That's a little tiny pill about the size of the head of a pin. No kidding. Um, and um, Ativan, which isn't much larger than that, a large head of a pin, <laughs> are the two major hitters that she took. But she also took Compazine, which is an anti-nausea medication. In fact, they prescribed three anti-nausea medications, Compazine, Zofran and Ativan, which uh, I just said was an anti-anxiety medication, but it's also used for anti-nausea. So they, they they really handed it to her as an anti-nausea medication, but it also has an, emo- an emotional impact. It modulates emotion. Well, Linda's a pretty stoic person. Actually, she's a very stoic person uh, in her normal life. Uh, well, since she's gotten cancer, she's become one of the most emotional people I've, I've known in my life, uh, especially these days. And it is part of this journey called drug dependence. And we just found out in November, I'm sorry, in December, uh, the first part of December, first week or so, that Compazine, Compazine, Zofran and Ativan are the tier of any nausea medication I've been giving her on a regular basis daily since um, since August 1st. Compazine, we were just told in December, as she starts to go through withdrawal processes or experiences from the medications because she no longer needs them for the intense pain that her body was having, uh, and she's not getting high off any of this stuff, Um. Compazine is a very problematic anti-nausea medication for, wait for it, older patients. Well, Linda turned 80 in December. She is an older patient. And they told me, these are the same doctors who just told me, who, who just addressed this this way with me in December. They told me in August to give her compazine as a baseline for anti-nausea. And if in that six-hour window when you can't take any more of that, she was still nauseous to give her um, Zofran next, which has a six-hour dose each window. 
And if within uh, six hours of that and the overlap with the composite, if that didn't work, to hit it with Ativan so that she could take three different anti-nausea medications within one, one block of six hours without overdosing or overdosing on any one particular drug. That's the way that's supposed to work. Well, they told me to do it that way. They literally told me Composine first, followed by Zofran, followed by Ativan. And then just before we went on vacation in December here for Christmas, uh, which I'll get to, um, somewhere like uh, December 14th, maybe, or December 10th, in a conference, we got told that uh, compazine is a very problematic um, anti-nausea medication for a person with cancer who's older and shouldn't be used. Well, they told us to use it, and in fact, they told me to use it as the major foundational drug, and that it and it has withdrawal symptoms, complications, extrapyramidal um, complications, um, like other heavy hitter drugs do. Well, I didn't know that about Composine. Uh, and who's going to read all this drug literature that you get when they give you the stuff in the drugstores? I mean, you, you know, your eyeballs would fall out of your head if you tried to read all that stuff. Um, and they didn't warn me about that. So she's taking Composine all this time. And as she gets free of the cancer in December, this past month, she's having, uh, basically withdrawal processes. Uh, that is, uh, when her meds wear out, she gets her her energy tanks, her voice drops, her gait becomes uh, slow uh, and uncertain, her balance goes off. She becomes especially emotionally sensitive uh, to anything in the environment or to what she's thinking. And she has crying jacks. I mean, for five or 10 minutes or half an hour, she's weepy, crying. And my wife has never been a crier in my entire life with her. It's it's completely new behavior for me uh, in life with my wife, Linda. And uh, we, I take her to the doctors. I call the doctors. We go in and they say, oh, well, we'll help her get off of the medication now, okay? And she shouldn't have – so stop the compens- – in mid-December, we were taking Compensine every day. So we go in and they say, stop taking the Compensine immediately and then uh, stay on these low doses. She's on a very low dose of oxycodone. Uh, she was prescribed 2.5 milligrams a day. That's a very small tablet the size of the head of a pin. And I've been splitting them in half, which is not easy to do (laughs) for at least a month. Uh, So she's taking uh, 2.5 milligrams per day per per awake cycle, uh, half in the morning and then eight hours later, uh, another half, and then she's asleep for the rest of the night. Um, So... 2.5 2.5 all day and 1.5 per dose. That's a very, very, that's the lowest dose that you can do as a baseline. And then I halved it along the way. Uh, and she's taken um, three Ativan a day. They're, they're every six hours. So she can get in three before she goes to sleep. And the combination of the oxygen and the Ativan 
are really heavy hitter drugs that that affect you like a, a drug withdrawal process. And I think it's those two interacting. And then along with the compazine, they come to tell us in December, were the culprits of this uh, struggle she goes through. She wakes up in the morning and she feels normal for 15 minutes, 20 minutes, an hour, half an hour, two hours. Uh, she has some energy. Her voice is back to normal. Her gait's back to normal. Her balance is okay. She looks and talks like Linda has always talked. And then something happens. Either she works too much, like uh, she'll do two hours of talking to people on the phone um, after she gets up. So three hours into her awake period, by 11 o'clock, by uh, 10 o'clock in the morning, if she gets up at 8 o'clock or she gets up at 9 o'clock, by 11 or 12 o'clock, she's gone for the day. She's shot. I mean, she just falls off a cliff uh, and she falls off a cliff abruptly. And then she gets an emotional uh, jag along with it and uh, her balance is bad and she walks and talks like an an old lady and her voice drops very low and she ends up talking to herself. Uh, I mean, all this stuff is related to the chemistry with the medications. I'm absolutely certain. And so they told us to take her off a of compensate and we did. And on July uh, 3rd, when she was, or, or July 4th, when she was diagnosed with the cancer, when she came home after six days in the hospital uh, and and she avoided dying at the time, she really wanted to go to um, Franklin, Tennessee over Christmas this year like we did last year. Last year we went to Franklin, Tennessee on December 24th to see the Oak Ridge Boys live at um, – Gaylord Palms Opryland, which is a major hotel right next door to Opryland in Nashville. And Franklin's right outside of Nashville. Uh, and she's been in love with the Oak Ridge Boys for a number of years now, five or six years. Um, they're a very established country and gospel group. If you haven't ever heard of them, you can Google them <laughs> or YouTube them and see what I'm talking about. Um, and... Um, we saw them last year live for their Christmas show uh, in uh, Franklin, Tennessee, or in Nashville, and she wanted to repeat it this year. So when we came out of the hospital in July, she set that as a goal. My wife is a goal setter. She's always reaching into the future and wanting to set up things and wanting to set up something nice for us, something uh, desirable, something fun in six weeks or six months or eight months down the road. Um, it's her Sagittarius energy if you're astrological. Um, I'm more of a here and now kind of guy, but she's a planner. So it's important. She, she's always done this. It, it's part of who she is. And it was important for her to do that in an effort to try to recover from the cancer. So in uh, August, uh, she called and made reservations for a repeat performance so that we would go to um, Franklin Christmas week and uh, see and hear the Oak Ridge Boys again. And she actually uh, bought the best tickets they had. Now, the Oak Ridge Boys don't, aren't, aren't charging like $8,000 a ticket. Uh, these guys are still working for the common man. 
trust me, uh, it's it's amazing uh, how they work at their uh, shows and stuff, um, and the amount of work they're doing at at their age. The, all these guys are older, like we are. <laughs> They've been at this for a while, um, and she got the the table. It, it, it's a dinner show, so there's a meal beforehand. So. She got the table, the round table, directly in front of the stage in the first row. We were no more than 14 feet from where these guys were standing on the stage um, the whole time. We were directly in front of them. We had the best seats in the house, had the best table in the house. So us and eight other people had the best seats in the house. Um, And she set that up. Uh, and we got through the chemo and the radiation and, you know, having that carrot in the future was important for, for Linda and it helped her get through all that. So we were determined to go and we had the reservations and stuff and we're not flyers. I hate flying anyway these days. I'm not sure I ever liked it, but I like it, really don't like it over the last 20 years. It gets worse every year. Uh, avoid flying as much as possible. Drive anywhere we can. So we drove, uh, as we did last year. And, you know, that's harder now that she's ill and she's feeling her oats, if you will, and she just turned 80. I'm 71, and I don't, I'm creakier than I used to be, but, you know, I can still handle the drive pretty well. But it was not easy on her. And, and I did all the driving, and that's unusual. Her and I always split driving. In fact, often earlier in her life, she would drive more often, longer than I did on trips. Uh, so she had to be a passenger the whole time, and uh, she had to endure the you know the travel uh, kind of thing. Well, we got to Franklin, and it was nine degrees, nine degrees above zero, and we live in Florida now. Uh, so she was freezing. I was freezing. We were both freezing. <laughs> she was freezing worse than me. And even the hotel the night we went to the show – had had major leaks. They had had uh, some snow and melt or rain and snow. I don't know. I, I don't know how all the precip came down. There was a light dusting of snow in Franklin as, as we got there on the ground, not much, about an inch. Uh, in Vermont, that would be called a dusting. Um, but they had major roof leaks in this hotel. And they had rug damage and wet rooms and... and um, and a lot of cold air, and uh, I, I guess it had air leaks from the roofs and stuff. Um, so the actual hotel itself inside, we were still wearing our coats. Uh, and only when we got to the ballroom where they had the concert did the coats come off, and it was only because they had a lot of people in there. I mean, it brought the temperature up enough that you could come out of a coat, but it still wasn't what you'd call toasty. Anyway, that was unpleasant. The cold weather was very unpleasant. The show was fabulous, uh, probably the best, the most intimate, present concert I've ever been, um, had the pleasure to be at, um, and it was done very well. So that part was just delightful. Uh, getting to it sucked, coming home from it sucked, <laughs> to, to the hotel room. Um, and then we we drove home. On the 28th from uh, Franklin back to Tampa, Florida here. And um, we hit five to six and a half hours of creepy crawly traffic jam on interstate roads. 
And it wasn't weather. It wasn't icy. It wasn't rainy. It wasn't snowy. It wasn't any of that. It was traffic accidents. We, we dealt with at least six major traffic accidents. Now, I didn't see all the accidents, uh, but the backups caused by the accidents were 10 and 15 miles long. And we were spending an hour to an hour and a half to two hours in creepy crawly traffic on an interstate, bumper to bumper, from one accident to another. It, I had planned to drive home in 12 hours from Franklin straight through. And the, our, our navigator said it takes 10. I always added two hours plus for stopping to go to the bathroom and gas and that kind of stuff. Uh, so I estimated 12 hours. Um, and that would have been a stretchy drive, but we wanted to stay the extra day in Franklin, which we decided to do so that we could, um, so I was going to drive straight through and, and instead of stopping, uh, halfway and taking two days to come back. Well, we still took two days to come back because at the end of the first day, we weren't even south of Atlanta, which is about halfway. And, um, I didn't think we'd be home until five o'clock the next morning at that, uh, at the rate we were going because of these, uh, accidents in the backup. So we stopped. And the next day we got up on the 29th and we hit the road again at nine and we didn't get home until nine o'clock that night. It was another 12 hour day because there were accidents that day too. And what I observed about this is these accidents are happening. And if you're driving on high speed roads, this is a tip for you, I think. Um, Our speed limits now are 70 miles an hour on interstates posted. And most normal people my age, at least, uh, grew up thinking, driving with the rule that uh, you abide by the rules, by the speed limit. And on a long trip or on high-speed roads, you can violate that five miles an hour very comfortably. The cop's not going to stop you if you're going five miles over the limit. You can get away with 9 to 10 miles an hour before they'll really start pulling you over. So 10 miles an hour in my brain is the most I would ever really want to cruise at um, over a speed limit on an interstate road. So I'll do I'll cruise around 80, okay, if if there's open enough road and yada, yada. Well, open road's drying up because, first of all, the normal traffic is going 70, 80 miles an hour, and then you have the the uh, cutter inner outers, the people who can't get home fast enough or can't get to where they're going fast enough people and just are doing 90, 93, 95, 97 miles an hour. And they're cutting from the left lane to the right lane all the way to the right lane to get around the pack traffic or the, or the crop of cars and then back into the left lane or they're weaving in and out of the three lanes. And... Even the people, the normal people, beside their crazy ones, I call them the crazy ones, are are driving too damn close these days. I mean, have any of you noticed that at speed like 70 and 80 miles an hour that people are one and a half car lengths off your bumper? Are you one and a half car lengths off the bumper in front of you? Uh, my rule in driver school was ten, uh 10, uh, a car length for every 10 miles an hour. So if you're doing 70 miles an hour, you should have seven car lengths, according to the handbook, between you and the next car. Now, I don't think anybody drove that way. I didn't drive that way. But, you know, if if I was driving 70 miles an hour 
Normally in my life on a highway like that, and I had cars in front of me, I would be at least five and a half or six car lengths behind the other person all the time. I would keep that gap in case they tap their brake hard for some reason. And I happened to be glancing left or right or in the rear view mirror at the minute they hit that, that extra second between seeing that brake light and you tap and your foot go into your own our, our brake light is critical uh, in terms of uh, slowing down before you close that gap as it comes up really quick. Uh, and it's not possible. If you're two and a half car lengths behind somebody who's going 80 miles an hour and you're not, even if you're looking directly at them, at their taillights when it goes off, you're still got to have lightning and reflexes to avoid uh, climbing up their up their rear end. Uh, and and you see people these days when they have to brake hard behind a car going into the shoulder, over to the left shoulder because they're too close and they're afraid that they're not going to be able to brake completely enough. Well, that's going on all over the place. Pack traffic, people are riding bumpers, I call it, in even in the fast lanes. And then you've got these crazy people going in and out and the extreme right lane to the left lane and doing 90, 95 miles an hour. And it's leading to major, major accidents where people are running into the car in front of them. The first car breaks and boom, it's at least two cars. It could be three, it could be four, it could be five. And that was happening all over the place. And I'm not talking about bad weather. I'm talking about dry road, clear view, uh, no atmospheric conditions causing the issue, just driving behavior. So I'm warning, <laughs> I'll warn you all. Um, you have to really pay attention if you're driving on open roads these days. Um, and my advice is pay attention to your gap between you and the person in front, um, especially gauging against your speed uh, because you need all the time you can to break these days at the speed that we're uh, traveling from state to state. So anyway, our trip home was miserable. It took two days. Wore the heck out of Linda. Stressed her a lot. She worried about the traffic and about me, my driving and if I was tired and all that good stuff. <sighs> On top of her having these bouts of every time she hits the end, every six hours, every five to six hours, six to eight hours, when she hits the end of the drug uh, impact in her body, when she goes to the end of that, she's winding up for the next uh, do, uh, she gets emotional, she gets sensitive, she gets really tired out, uh, she, go, she falls off the cliff. Um, it's been miserable. Uh, and it's not it's not biological pain and cancer. It's this other stuff now, uh, and she can't get her energy back. I think the drugs, the drugs that helped her get through this, are now sapping the energy out of her, sucking her dry, keeping her tank dry. Uh, she can barely get it filled overnight and sleep in the morning. She's good for at best four hours a day, and then it's back into the pits the pits I'm trying to describe here. And then I just, this is uh, Monday, uh, January 2nd, uh, in the evening, about quarter after seven. I got up this morning uh, knowing that she was, she had her last half of Oxy pill in her bottle today. We got home um, Friday late. 
I couldn't call the hospital on Saturday. I couldn't get a hold of her team on Saturday. So I assumed Monday morning, first thing, I'd be on the phone. I have scheduling to do with um, testing for this month, uh, her radiation, her radiology test for her kidney and her uh, her cervix, her cancer, to make sure everything's clear and some blood work and another reevaluation with the doctors involved. Um, and um, I I got up this morning at 8 o'clock uh, knowing I had to try to get all the scheduling done and especially to begin with to get in touch with the doctors on her chemo team uh, who are the prescribers of the meds that I've been talking about to renew her oxy because she was out of it as of this morning and to get a step-down schedule from them, which they said they would give us after the holidays. But they didn't want us to try to wean her off while we were away. So just keep her where she was at was where it was left off uh, earlier here in uh, in December when we had the last consult. And she was in a crisis with, with the meds. Well, guess what? It's a holiday. The hospital declared January 2 a holiday. So nobody was at work at Tampa General. And it was like the evening hours all day. So I couldn't get a hold of her team because her team wasn't there. And I ended up this afternoon at 2.30 finding that out for sure, knowing that they were closed down for the day and called into the the emergency service or the evening service, the call-in service when, uh, when offices are closed and the doctors are gone at the hospital and tried to get the on-call doctor to prescribe some oxy for her because she's completely out and she's starting to go into withdrawal a couple of hours ago from that. Um, and spent um, an hour on the phone, off and on, getting through. Spoke to three answer people, uh, answer call people. They're not really the doctors or the nurses. They're the answering service people. They're the ones that you have to go to before you get. they get to a doctor, a treater not you, um, and they, you know you have to field everything with them, then they have to field it with, anyway. I had to go through three rounds of that to get somebody who just didn't drop out of the picture along the way um, and l- left me hanging. And the third person at 2.30 basically said, um, after I explained to her, not a treater, but to the answer person, said, uh, I'll contact the doctor on call, but I'm not confident that he'll be able to help you until tomorrow when the team comes back uh, because they're probably not going to be able to prescribe opiates over the phone overnight. And I'm thinking, what? So at any rate, um, and this is the third person I talked to, so I, I, I was a little strong uh, with the person, and I explained to her that I felt like it was a runaround, and um, I didn't understand why some doctor involved in this process can't write a script, can't call in a script to a drugstore today so that I can get there before closing time. So she said, well, I'll go, and this is her language, I'll go above and beyond, sir, and, and I'll, I'll call the doctor on call myself and the team members or whoever and see what I can 
I can get. But I'm, she was telling me I'm not optimistic. I said, well, please, please um, try to uh, try to get a doctor to call me at least, okay, right, which didn't happen, by the way. These people's job is to field between you and the doctors involved, apparently. Um, and I at least said, will you call me back regardless whether it's approved or not approved, whether it's going to be called into the pharmacy or not? And she gave me a promise she would because a lot of times in the last six months when I'm in the phone process with the hospital and the treaters um, – if the answer is no, they just don't get back to you. So you're left hanging. You're left hanging for six, seven, eight hours, and you're thinking, are they going to come back? Are they going to? And they don't. And then the day goes by, and you go, well, at some point you go, well, I guess the answer was no to that, you know, that, that kind of thing. Um, so I, I pressured this person, and she did call me back. She called me back at 6 o'clock after 2.30 and said that there, the doctor on call was not able to call in a prescription for an opiate overnight, that it had to be done by a team person. I said, what? And she said, um, what did she say? I'm trying to remember this well enough. Um, So the doctor on call wasn't a qualified enough doctor to prescribe opiates, something like that. And the doctor who prescribes the opiates for my wife uh, who was a oncological um, chemo expert? Oncology chemo is her specialty. As a as an MD, is is authorized to prescribe it. But she's off today, and under no circumstances is she called. At no circumstances uh, does she have to deal with her patients on her day off. And instead, it's left to the institutional on call doctor at the hospital or under the oncology department or the gynecology, I don't know, um, whoever the on-call doctor is at the hospital that has to work. And they're probably residents, I guess. And what I'm getting an understanding of is that the actual MD who, who, who got talked to doesn't have the legal authority at this point in their career to get on a phone and call a drugstore and prescribe an opiate by federal law in state. Now, the last time we had this he he call that we were going out of state, I can't remember when that was. It was in September, I think. I had the same uh, struggle, and the answer was after we left the state that there was no way that, that any doctor could get an opiate prescribed interstate. You can't call another state, no matter who you are as a doctor, and get an opiate prescribed over the phone. That's a federal regulation. I mean, like, who's in charge here? The AMA clearly is not in charge of taking care of people anymore. The government and the health insurance industry is in charge, clearly. I mean, where did this get so screwed up? At any rate, so Linda's struggling tonight because of this. And I have to get on the phone in the morning as early as possible, quarter to eight, eight o'clock, and try to get as... uh, this medication re-prescribed for her tomorrow and a step-down schedule. And then I've got to schedule all this other stuff. So anyway, that's the update. Um, I really was, me and Linda both, we were both hoping over these months, especially during the awful 
trudge of the treatment through the chemo and the radiation, that come Christmas, she would feel like a human being, that she'd have energy, that she'd be normalized again, pretty normal again, feel normal again. And she does from the cancer. Uh, she does maybe fairly much from the radiation, the after effects of the radiation, although I'm not sure she's completely clear of that. But now she's got this withdrawal from the drugs that she had to depend on that's really sapping her energy and causing her great distress. I wonder if other cancer patients, all cancer patients, are going through this same kind of paradigm all the time. If any of you out there have had cancer or know people who have had cancer and have experience with uh, the experience of going through cancer treatment and know anything about this uh, and have any wisdom input comment or just tag along, yep, that happened to me too, (laughs) please feel free to email, call, text me (laughs) at Partners for Karmic Freedom um, at gmail.com or 802-323-6880. Text me, call me. Tell me what your experience was. I really would like to know if other people are having these same kind of experiences. It must be the standardization of our healthcare around cancer these days, as far as I can tell. And it is abysmal. The human part of this is completely gone. This is just a machine and a protocol and an economic model. And it's geared for continuity and ease of repetition and if it happens to help the patient, that's fine, but not really the first priority as far as I can tell. So at any rate, that's my rant. Um, it's 38 minutes. Uh, I think I'm going to stop here uh, and start another podcast. So if you're listening to this one, look after you get done this one for another podcast. I'll call it New Year's Part 2. <laughs> I'll call this New Year's Part 1. I want to talk a little bit about the New Year's. Um, uh, I want to talk about um, I want to talk about the importance of how we uh, tackle our life, how we grapple with our life, how we frame our life, how we engage with the life, and how, as a culture, I think, we're not really doing much of that anymore. We're living in a very non-focused, randomized framework these days. Uh, and it's it's generating a lot of people with no purpose in life. Uh, and it's making it hard for the people who have purpose in life to maintain having purpose in life. It's getting so chaotic. Anyway, I wanted to talk a little bit about that. Um, I, so I'm going to stop here. Thanks for listening. Uh, I will, uh, again, try to do a cancer project every week. Um, I, game for sun, I aim for Sundays, uh, nights. Uh, it often doesn't happen in the last month. I end up on Mondays, Monday, days or nights doing it. Um, I intend to keep doing that for the duration of Linda's treatment paradigms, whatever that is, uh, probably this whole year. So we'll see how that goes. And I also want to branch out and start doing some other podcasts as we get into this year and I can find a time and the energy um, because I'm a little worn out myself these days. 
So at any rate, uh, I'd like to wish everyone a happy and healthy New Year. I'd like to thank you all for uh, tagging along, having an interest, and listening to these podcasts that I've been doing. Uh, And to encourage you to, uh, if there's anyone out there that you know that um, could use our services, particularly mine, um, please feel free to refer them to us. Uh, we can we could use the work. Uh, I uh, I'm still uh, in a place where I need to generate income, <laughs> uh, and I have a purpose in life. I need to have people to work with to feel like a human being uh, about myself in life on a daily basis. So. Um, uh, if you got anybody you think could benefit from uh, from our work, uh, please uh, offer our information to them. Um, and uh, I will talk to you soon. This is Michael Brady of Partners for Karmic Freedom. Um, Happy New Year. Mm-hmm.